Welcome to the Faith is Not Blind podcast. I'm very pleased to be here in Manchester, England, and my name is Sarah Devonier. We're trying to get some interviews from all around the world to get a broader perspective on faith. And here we are with Seth. We're really glad you're here. Seth, would you talk about a little bit of where you're from? He traveled a little bit to be with us today. Um, so I, yeah, I li I've lived here in the northwest of England for about 20 years. Um, I live a little bit further north than Manchester, um, up in a town called Chorley, uh, where the Preston Temple is located. And we've been there, as I said, uh, for about 20 years now. Yeah. yeah. Will you talk about your beginnings and your sort of roots of belief? Where would mm. you say that your belief was founded and started? Um, I'm, I feel really fortunate that um, growing up, my parents were really open um, and very affirming of their conversion experiences. So we would hear really specific stories um, from both of them about their journey into the And uh, were they the both church. converts? Yeah, yeah. So um, in the late 60s, uh, they joined the church independent of each other uh, and then met probably about two years after my dad had joined. Um, and they, they came in um, to, to the church, uh, as I said, yeah, just independent of each other and um, with really quite unusual experiences. Um, my, my, my father, my dad, uh, was really beginning to question the meaning of, of his life. Uh, he'd had a difficult childhood, um, but he also had, I think, quite a natural faith in the possibility of his own potential. <laughs> and he, he believed that he could achieve certain things. He went out and, and, and somehow found those opportunities. Um, and was working in the fashion industry, um, working with some quite uh, famous people, and began to feel quite disillusioned that as exciting as it was and as fulfilled as he was in terms of overcoming the adversity that he'd faced as a young man, it just wasn't meeting um, his spiritual needs. And so one day uh, in London, he was standing or sitting close to the Albert Memorial looking at the statues of great figures, uh, Shakespeare, Beethoven, all sorts of people that these models had been uh, made of. And he, he, he asked the question, well, what made these people so great? And he, he recounted that he had this impression, um, this a, a spiritual voice almost that told him that God had made them great. And he, he seemed to have this conversation with this experience. And, <laughs> and asked God, uh, where can I find you? And within a very short distance of that memorial were all sorts of different faiths and all sorts of different traditions. And he, he describes feeling um, almost magnetized to the Hyde Park Chapel um, where he was engaged by some uh, missionaries and devoured the message of the restoration. And, asked to be initiated. Uh, he didn't really understand the language um, <laughs> involved, but he was really, really keen to, he couldn't read, um, and he'd spent all night reading a book called Meet the Mormons, and really felt 
the, the, the Spirit influence him and teach him to read. He describes that the Spirit, the Holy Ghost taught him how to read. And it was really quite a miraculous experience. And, wow. and so he joined the church. And, and so as a child, we'd hear this experience. And he, he was never shy. Uh, he's still not, not shy in sharing those experiences and more. Um, and my mum was similar, that she was searching for some meaning. She'd kind of moved towards being agnostic. And then she had an experience where her, her faith was sort of, or her, her perspective was challenged. Um, and she felt the desire and the need and the ability to give God the benefit of the doubt. And had a really profound personal experience, spiritual experience, where she became deeply and profoundly convinced of the reality of Jesus Christ and of life beyond the grave and and again felt drawn uh, to the church and and she 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 was perhaps more circumspect and more um, she, she was perhaps less quick to share that experience with people but not with us as children and so growing up um, faith seemed to be a really almost a logical kind yeah. of outcome of well, that experience. I think it's interesting that, that for both of your parents, their belief was founded on not just spiritual needs. You, you said your dad was feeling like he needed his spiritual needs met, but in tandem with that, his intellectual needs were met mm. through that experience with mm. reading, mm. that, that mm. the word mm. and his connection with that mm. had its foundation with words and with mm. language and with mm. reading. Mm. And how, how did that influence your development and your testimony to be in a home where your parents were sharing things so naturally, but also wanted you to develop your mind and your mm. spirit so you could mm. fulfill both of those needs? Mm. Yeah, that's a really interesting question because I think my, my parents would both um, quite openly admit that education hadn't come easily to either of them yeah. as children. Um, neither of them had had particularly positive experiences, but both of them have continued to have a, a real fascination for lifelong learning um, and a real depth in the way in which they approach certain questions. So I think that's a really perceptive thing that you've noticed, that this love of language and the intellectual yeah. needs that were stimulated. Um, and I think it's a strange sort of um, tension or conflict within me, because growing up as a child, um, I had a, a kind of ambivalent relationship with education, because I'd seen my parents seem to do well through this sort of redemptive experience of the gospel but not feel comfortable within an educational setting, but they'd made their own way through and each of them had really developed a capacity for, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, perceptive approaches to the questions of the soul and the meaning of life. And so that inspired me and we talk about that um, so it's a very open home where you, you discuss questions that you have with your parents. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think it was quite, um, it was quite broad, I think. We, we grew up also being really appreciative of religious experience that people had beyond the boundaries of 
Latter-day Saint mm-hmm. um, outlook, the, the reality, the groundedness of, of, of a relationship with the divine was, we, we recognised that that was something that could happen in all traditions. Yeah. Um, and I suppose in some ways that, that would kind of create a little bit of conflict for me sometimes in trying to, to reconcile that with right. some of the things I understood from my own uh, church experience. Um, but I think it was healthy, healthy for me to, to have to think about those questions yeah. and, and find some reconciliation with them. And generosity as well, that not being too blinkered in, in thinking that we had a monopoly. Yeah. And with that relationship with God that your parents wanted you to appreciate on a broad level, when would you say that you had a relationship with God and how did you know that you did? At what point? Yeah, and again, that's a really interesting question. And I've been thinking about that, that question. Um, I think it goes deep into my early childhood. I think my parents, because they were so open and so willing to talk about their conversion experiences, um, and because they also read to me from uh, Bible stories, appropriate for, for a child to mm-hmm. understand, there was a sort of sensitivity and there was a um, an appreciation of those things that that I wouldn't have been able to articulate as a child but I recognized and I suppose there was a sensitivity I think actually probably I always wanted to have the same kind of dramatic uh, road to Damascus kind of you know powerful stop the press kind of experience it just I learned as well that I couldn't force that to happen Right. So, but going back to your actual question, I, I think that probably as, as an eleven-year-old, I was in a, um, I was in a, a meeting where somebody was talking about the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection, and I just felt, as an eleven-year-old, this desire to start reading <laughs> scripture on a daily basis, and it just, as a child, it just, I felt this moving within me to to do that and I began this commitment to reading on a daily basis and I think that's probably where the first catalyst of independent faith came from. Well and I love how that echoes your dad's experience even though it wasn't as dramatic for you to have this desire and then to start reading Mm. which I think often we have we have a desire that might be small comparatively. It's, mm. it's not theatrical, but it's mm. a desire that leads us to do something. So, mm. so you start reading and it's daily and you're mm. experiencing the word like mm. your dad did mm. with mm. both the capital W and the mm. lowercase w. And so as you matured and developed and started to get ready to go on a mission, <laughs> what, how did your testimony develop? I, I mm. know that you said maybe it wasn't dramatic and I think it's important for us to mm. note, it it doesn't have to be dramatic. Mm. It can develop through these daily rituals of reading. Yeah, and I think for me it's been really important that it hasn't been really dramatic because I think that the things that I really treasure and cherish within my faith and within my my paradigm now of of what religion means to me or what my faith means to me has been an accumulation of these quiet experiences. Yeah. Um, and in some respects, they have become more important to me. They've become more um, 
robust maybe, they're more, they seem to have more rigor. They seem to have more staying power. Um, there was another experience that I had probably uh, at about the age of 16, again where I was trying to force this experience. I, wanted, I, I walked away from the house, went down into the woods, I tried to create this really sort of dynamic kind of location, environment. And I, I, I prayed, I, I asked for, a, effectively, just a, I asked a direct question like my parents have been asking, and I just felt like nothing happened. Mm. And I felt really disappointed about that, and I felt discouraged, I felt a little bit disheartened. But as I walked home, this, this moving happened, and I, I had this, this thought, really, that I needed to practice the principles of the gospel more sincerely. And looking back on it, I believe that was, that was the response to prayer. When I was quiet enough, to, and Which not, was walking home. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When I wasn't so sort of worked up about having yeah. this dramatic response, I was quiet enough to hear it. And, 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 and it, I don't think it's overdoing it to say that it changed me and it changed the course of my life, that quiet response. Because I began to experiment with the principle of brotherly kindness. Now, I'm the eldest of eight children. So and you needed a lot of yeah, brotherly maybe kindness. Yeah, I did. Actually, I really did. And <laughs> I, I don't think that I've ever been, um, I think it's fair to say, I've never been a contentious sibling. Um, but I think probably, I think it's fair to say I was maybe passive. And I wasn't mm. particularly outward in, in, in trying to make a difference to other people as much as I could have been. Anyway, I tried in a concerted way to, to practice that principle. I felt changed. I felt different. And there did come a, a moment um, maybe not too many weeks, maybe not too many months, I don't remember exactly the time frame, but a really powerful personal experience where I did really feel a deep sense of Jesus Christ mm. and my relationship with him and to him and his awareness of me. And I was just so deeply affected by that. Um, and, and that was preparation to go and serve well, in the mission field. And I think it's interesting, too, that significance is not measured by value. Uh, sorry, significance is not measured by volume with your spiritual experiences. And you use the word quiet, and quiet doesn't necessarily have to contradict um, or counteract depth. And so, so you had these deep, deeply rooted spiritual experience. Maybe they weren't what we'd say dramatic, but they were significant. Talk a little bit about how maybe some of those were challenged mm. a little bit later, what they were challenged by, first mm. of all, mm. and, and what that was like to have those roots, those quiet but strong roots mm. challenged. Mm. Yeah, so um, I think the challenges began um, I was serving uh, as a bishop um, of, of a relatively big ward um, and I was also teaching and training missionaries to, in, in the missionary training centre. And at the same time I was trying to put right in my own life my, what I felt was a lack of education. I, I, I chose to specialise in LDS 
history, so really the 19th century. Yeah. Um, and Latter-day Saint faith experience in particular, so the faith commitment. And I, I focused my first research around the very first Latter-day Saint mission to uh, Great Britain mm -hmm. uh, with Heber C. Kimball, um, Joseph Fielding, and, and those first seven missionaries that came over to Liverpool and Preston and began communicating uh, the gospel message with people at that time. And, and what I was doing was looking into uh, newspapers of the time. I was looking at original records that the church had maintained, so the, the membership lists and the um, conference records and um, the writings of the, the missionaries of the time. And um, I, I suppose I began to find a far more nuanced and far more detailed record. It was a far more complex experience right. than, than I, it wasn't the simple narrative. It wasn't sort of one and one makes two. You know, missionary knocks on door, somebody answers and they embrace the gospel. It was sometimes that, but it wasn't entirely just that. And the, the complexity of it began to challenge some of the assumptions and presumptions that I had. Because you had assumed or been taught that everything was very straightforward and clear. Um, yeah, maybe partly that, but also because uh, I had be had grown up so mindful of the miraculous mm. that I wasn't so prepared for the mundane okay. or, or of the mechanical. And somewhere in that, somewhere within the, the mundane, the mundane and the mechanical, and also sometimes the very ordinary. Um, I began to sometimes wonder about the logistics of it all, or the the, the causation of of things. And um, sometimes I found that people were busy doing things that I didn't have any awareness that they were busy doing, um, and there were just so many there were so many questions that unsettled me and i found it so difficult to either square some of those um, new pieces of information or just have anybody that could actually talk to about it because working within the, the missionary training center it was all about focusing on the miraculous. Um, and there wasn't time or space, maybe, or need to talk about the more nuanced aspects of those. So how, how did you reconcile that? Because that, that's difficult and it can feel very mm. lonely, especially mm. if you feel like you don't have anyone to talk to. Yeah. What, what were you able to do to make your way through that? Well, um, Honestly, I think I just quietly wrestled with it mm. um, and I continued to try to find alternative um, ways to explain or to understand what I was discovering and finding. Um, and strangely enough, I mean, I suppose there's a, there is a sort of symmetry with my own journey and what I, what I actually found that helped to really trigger a new simplicity 
<laughs> because I had, um, I had an original simplicity of faith. I'd found some, that challenged and really struggled with that. And I found that I genuinely felt a reconciliation with some really simple, I don't want to necessarily use the word solution, but suggestions. And I think that for me, I think that many of, much of my faith now is, is allowing myself to suggest uh, the hope, suggest the possibilities. Um, in, in a sort of, uh, not inverted way, but in a, a sort of reflected way. You know, people, I have discovered, I've learned that it's possible to approach questions with the paradigm of doubt. And I found it more useful. I've been there and I've felt that and it's really powerful but it's also a never-ending story mm. and it's a never-ending journey. It, there's, no, there's no end to that, that. And I think that what I found was the possibility of the framework of suggest, suggested possibility. Um, there were two, two specific yeah. things. Two, two specific things were, when I reflected on Joseph Smith's own wrestle with his questions and his doubt, the, the complexity that he was struggling with, his solution was actually really, really simple. And as he was reading James, he just had this really powerful experience, this spiritual quiet experience that prompted him to go and pray about his questions. But the catalyst was actually an encounter in James where he felt the spirit come into his heart with every, every, every force, every, every feeling of his heart. And I, I knew in that moment that I could relate to that. Yeah. I knew what that, I felt confident enough to say, I know what that feeling is. I felt that, but I also know what's required. I know what kind of mental framework I need to be receptive to that kind of experience. And I know that I need to be open. I need to be trusting. I need to be believing. I need to be open to the possibility of God's interest in my life and in his capacity to actually respond to my questions. And that in itself was really comforting because I realized that it's not formulaic, but there's a formula and it's being childlike and being open. I like to call it, the, I suppose it's Samuel Taylor Coleridge talked about the willing suspension of disbelief, but mm -hmm. I think it works and I don't think it's, I don't think it's a dismissal of the need to be robust in our investigation, but I have found the willing suspension of disbelief allows me to be open enough for long enough to feel an encounter with the divine, with Heavenly Father, with, with yeah. God. And, and so that first thing was really powerful. And then a really simple thing was where Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon, had an argument with Emma, went back upstairs to carry on translating, couldn't do it. And I thought, you know what? I know what that feels like too. I know what it feels like to feel spiritually orientated, to have a bad day, to get a bit grouchy with somebody and to lose that feeling. I know what that feels like. And so I know what it feels. And so that tells me that my, almost my baseline is that Joseph was really devout. He was really sincere. He was genuine in wanting a relationship with 
God. Right. And I can relate to that. And if that works for him, that's good enough. If that's good enough for him, yeah. then it's good enough for me, and I'll work with that. Well, and that, that devotion that you found, I think it, what an interesting perspective on Joseph Smith, that it wasn't just his first vision. Part of it was his attitude that led up to the first vision. And even if we can't have a vision, we can still try and echo that, that attitude. As, as you teach your own children about this, and I think you grew up in a, in a good home yourself, but as you describe the difficulty of wading through this, what would you tell your children or other people's children about this experience so that they wouldn't be afraid of doubt, so that, so that they could realize it, it can be instructive, it can soften you, even if you don't find all the answers? Mm -hmm. and, I, and I definitely don't. And I daily, can, I daily encounter, I daily feel that. And I think that I have found a space. I think ultimately what I would probably try to say is that for me now, faith is the willingness to keep an open mind on what God intends for me mm -hmm. and not to decide ahead of time what he intends for me. And, and that allows me and hopefully it allows my children to remain humble to the possibility that God really does know the detail of their life and is interested in the detail of their life. And there will be questions, that there will be um, really difficult things to, to navigate, but that makes the decision to believe more meaningful and it makes the experience of believing more meaningful. And I feel that I've, thankfully, and I think of it as, but for the, God, but for the grace of God go I, I recognise that I'd never, I'm not out of the woods. I don't, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that any of us are ever fully out of the woods. But in some respects, being in the woods is what it's about. And the decision to, to exercise that faith and to remain open to the, power that God has to influence, influence our lives for good is the, is the miracle. That's the adventure. Right, and that the miraculous was found for you in those divine details, that, that that is a chosen miracle. It's your miracle, which probably is more meaningful to you than some grand thing. You remind me of a Gerard Manley Hopkins poem, the God's grandeur, that glory, to, glory be to God for dappled things these little imperfections, these doubts that can actually help nourish us so that we stay in the woods. We don't try and get out of them necessarily. We, we appreciate them for what they are and we can see God while we're even in the woods. Thank you for that beautiful experience. I really appreciate you sharing it. You're welcome and thank you for letting me.